has a confession to make. It actually didn't dawn on to me until I finished my, my notes that I used two more space-based illustrations this week. So I will try to kick the habit in the future, but you'll have to bear with me today. Uh, for those of you that enjoy tracking celestial things, uh, last month you probably heard the story about how the hopes of Japanese startup iSpace Inc. were literally dashed when their lunar lander Hakuto-R crashed into the moon. It was a very sad day uh, for the Japanese space program and also since this was meant to be the first time a private company was going to land something on the moon. And they spent the last month combing over the details and the data trying to figure out what went wrong. And they, they announced this week they finally think they, they figured out what, what happened. And it turns out something that seemed unimportant at the time ended up being, as is often the case, a really big deal. Uh, the landing site for the Hakuto-R was changed uh, very late into the development cycle. And that meant that as the lunar lander was coming in, it passed over different terrain than it had been originally programmed to traverse. And that's what proved fatal. See, on the way into the landing, there was a big ridge of a crater that this lander had to pass over. And so as the lander was coming in and it passed over this rim, its altitude sensors began finding readings that were outside of the range it had initially been programmed to anticipate. And being a good little thinker, uh, the lunar lander turned off its altitude sensor and assumed it was busted. The result of that was that it assumed it was at the altitude it was when it was over the top of the crater rim. As it approached its landing site, descended into a, a good almost hover, ran out of its landing fuel, and then fell about two miles to the surface of the moon because it was not centimeters, it was miles above where it was supposed to be. Disappointing. But I think also, I mean, it was a very expensive sermon illustration. It is a good illustration of what Paul is talking about here when he gets to the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection was, was this thing that some of the people in Corinth just thought they could turn off as, as unimportant. It, it didn't fit into how they thought things were supposed to work. It was This doctrine was giving them readings outside of their expected range, and they thought they could live a successful Christian life without the doctrine of the resurrection. Just set it aside and complete the mission. But as we're going to see this morning, what Paul is going to show us is that you can't do that. You can't do that with the resurrection. This doctrine is essential to the Christian life. In fact, his main point is simply this. Resurrection from the dead is either going to be the great hope, the great hope of every Christian, or it is going to be the complete undoing of the Christian faith. It's going to be one or the other. And so this morning, as Paul leads us into this discussion of the resurrection, coming out of our discussion of the gospel last week, I'd invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 19. And as you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, says this. Now... If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, 
we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Would you pray with me? Father, even as we've sung today, we are people of the risen King who delight to sing his praise. And this morning, I pray that you would encourage us once again with how precious and essential this great teaching of your word about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead is, that we would not be ashamed of the scorn of the world or its ridicule of those who will think this to be a silly story, because we understand that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all our hope. And so we turn to your word this morning and we ask that you would open our eyes to see familiar truths and dear truths and to be edified and encouraged by them once again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is going to walk us through a long argument this morning, and he's not actually going to be done after today. He's going to give kind of the negative side of it, and next week he's going to give the positive side of it. But he's going to make a series of observations about the consequences of challenging or threatening the doctrine of the resurrection. And in verses 12 through 15, we'll see our first point this morning, and that is that without the resurrection, Paul will argue, we have no Savior. If you deny the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, then you have just taken the Savior out of the gospel. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says this, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's the question that's going to set the tone for the rest of the chapter all the way to verse 58. And if you recall, when Paul says, now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, he's referring back to what he just told us last week. The gospel presentation that had been made since the beginning was that presentation with four central truths. Christ died for sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And he appeared to the apostles and then to many others. That is the gospel that not only was preached around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but that was the gospel message Paul pointed out last week had been preached to the Corinthians. That was the gospel message they had believed in. In other words, the Corinthians knew of no other gospel but the gospel of a resurrected Jesus. That was their only gospel message. And so Paul says, that being the case, how is it that some among you say... There is no resurrection of the dead. How could that be? And it's obvious from Paul asking this question that some in Corinth actually were saying that. And I think it's helpful to think about why they might be tempted to do so. Because from us looking back, it seems odd. Like, how could you have a church where there's a group of people that believe there's no resurrection from the dead? But I think it's easy for us to look back through 2,000 years of church history and not appreciate that this was a pretty weird doctrine in the ancient world. In fact, I looked up on Encyclopedia Britannica to find out world religions that believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. And I ran across this paragraph. It says this, ancient Middle Eastern religious thought. So the ideas 
that dominated where the story of the gospel came from, the ancient Middle East. It says they provided a background for belief in the resurrection of a divine being, but belief in personal resurrection of humans was unknown. What about the Greco-Roman world where Corinth was situated? In Greco-Roman religious thought, there was a belief in the immortality of the soul, but not in the resurrection of the body. What about the Greek-influenced world? Symbolic resurrection or rebirth of the spirit occurred in the Hellenistic mystery religions, but bodily resurrection after death was not recognized. In other words, this idea that you would die and come back physically from the dead was a very strange notion in the ancient world. It was not something that they heard of very often. It would have struck them as very odd. But more than just odd, it would have also struck them as kind of gross, kind of undesirable. We're talking about an ancient Greco-Roman world where the ideas of Plato were very dominant, where this, this notion had captured their thoughts that things that are spiritual are good and things that are physical are bad. And the goal in life to become spiritually enlightened is to try to get further and further away from fleshly things, from physical things, and to become more and more purely spiritual in your thinking and in your living. The great goal then being that perhaps in the afterlife you would have some transcendent or ascendant experience and merge with the great spiritual reality and finally be free from all this yucky physical stuff. So the idea that you would have bodily physical resurrection was both kind of unheard of in world religions. It was also considered kind of gross, and why would you want to do that? Thirdly, even Judaism, which does have roots in a belief in resurrection, going back into the Old Testament, even Judaism was still divided on this issue as it was taught throughout the ancient world. If you recall, most famously, there was a sect within Judaism called the Sadducees, who, while they did believe in some kind of consciousness after death and a spiritual reality, denied resurrection from the dead entirely. Their belief would have been that which was most compatible with the Greek world and most likely to have had an influence on the thinking of the church in Corinth. And so you can kind of understand culturally why there might be some in Corinth that would have heard and believed even in a gospel that mentioned a resurrected Jesus, but were still thinking like, yeah, but that can't be what it sounds like. That can't actually be physical resurrection because nobody does that. That's gross. That's weird. Even the Jews don't all believe that. And I think we see here an encouragement because we can make the same mistake. Have you ever noticed how much we love changing our favorite stories over time to keep fitting in with what feels like we want it to be in the present? Like, for example, have you, have you noticed how many times we've remade Batman? Right? And somehow every time we remake Batman, Batman's inner angst and struggle is whatever my inner angst and struggle is right now. Or, or tales like A Star is Born or Oliver or Dracula or Spider-Man. I mean, these, these movies and things that just keep being made over and over, but they're always different. And they're always a reflection, a bit of a mirror, not necessarily what the original authors had in mind, but of where we are at today and what we think is important. Sometimes that can lead to great success and fame and fortune. And other times, I think even recently of the, the remake of the Cleopatra, that can lead to the worst movie ratings in history. It will always be a temptation to do this with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
it will always be a, t- a temptation to try to make it culturally compatible with how we think the world is supposed to work. We'll always feel pressure to make the gospel more about what we can do and not about the grace of God and what he has done. We'll always be tempted to make the gospel message more about moral betterment and not repentance from sin. We'll try to make the gospel a good example to follow and then strip it of all of its supernatural elements. We'll try to see the gospel as therapy for our feelings and not objective truth from God. But unlike remaking a famous book or movie, we're not just risking box office revenues, book sales, online reviews, and the wrath of fanboys and fangirls. When you tamper with the gospel, as Paul is going to tell the Corinthians, you risk your eternal destiny, which is the point that Paul begins to make now in earnest in verse 13. If you look with me there, Paul writes this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And this is the beginning of Paul's formal, logical argument. And they all stem off of this phrase, this statement in this verse. If you were a fan of your logic classes back in high school or college, this is a classic modus tollens argument. You can make a statement, if A, then B, right? If you jump, your feet will leave the ground. What Paul is doing is flipping that the other way around. And he's saying, well, then if not B, then not A. If your feet never actually leave the ground, then despite your best efforts, you haven't actually jumped. If Christ rose from the dead, then resurrection from the dead is a real thing. But Paul is flipping that the other way around. And saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, however, then we are in big trouble. Because that logically leads to this inevitable conclusion. Christ didn't rise from the dead. Is that really a big deal? Well, let's find out. What happens if your doctrine ends up denying the resurrection of Jesus? Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The first consequence of Jesus having never risen from the dead is that the message proclaiming the gospel of a resurrected Savior becomes just hot air. If you remember back in verse 2, we saw the word vanity for the first time, that your belief would be in vain, and I mentioned that that was a different word than the one that we see here two times in this verse. Back in verse 2, he was talking about believing the wrong things. In other words, it'd be like going to the store to buy milk, and you come home and you discover it was a jug of Elmer's glue. That's disappointing. That's not helpful. But your faith in milk has not been shaken. But you may go get your glasses prescription renewed so that you don't make the same mistake twice. The word vain he's using here about the preaching of the gospel being vain means that you have actually found the real object to be useless. It's like going to the store to buy milk and you buy a jug of milk and you take it home and you take the cap off and you discover the most rancid, foul, putrid, useless liquid. Absolutely worthless. And Paul says, if you deny resurrection of the dead, then you deny the resurrection of Jesus. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, then you have turned the gospel message into a false advertisement. The product is faulty. And anyone who trusts in that product, anybody who trusts in that message, 
is going to be in for a rude surprise, which is what Paul says next. Not only is his preaching vain, but your faith in that proclaimed message, he says, also is vain. If you trusted in a risen Savior who, in fact, did not rise, you trusted in a fiction. Back in the early 2000s, two teachers in Michigan were trying to increase their salary by getting their doctoral degrees. And all seemed well and good, especially since they had applied to the prestigious Cambridge State University. And some of you are already going, wait, what? Cambridge, I have heard of. Cambridge State? And you're on to it. The, the faculty of the school became suspicious when they learned that both of these teachers had been able to get entrance into this doctoral program with less than 48 hours of review, and that they had both then secured their doctoral degrees with six and 11 months, respectively, of online coursework. So they did some digging, and they discovered, you will not be surprised to learn, that this is just one of those classic paper mills, running out diplomas that have no academic weight or accreditation whatsoever. In fact, it was an organization that kept bouncing around from Louisiana to Hawaii to Mississippi, all over the place, because it kept getting sued for its fraudulent activities. And these two teachers who had put their faith in the ability of these doctoral degrees to get them this great increased salary were not only embarrassed and sorely mistaken and ashamed, but they were also out all the time and money they had invested in this worthless piece of paper. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no Savior who came back from the dead. And if there is no Savior, then you've all been scammed. And if anyone is wondering if perhaps Paul's just getting a little bit too high on his hobby horse about this resurrection thing, you know, maybe he was a Pharisee and just grew up fighting with the Sadducees. This is not just a hobby horse issue. Because if you deny the resurrection, there's actually a more serious implication, which makes the message of Paul and belief in that message not only wrong and errant, it actually makes it evil if Christ is not raised. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 15. Look at that. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So not only does Paul say our faith prove vain and useless without the resurrection, it turns out our faith becomes blasphemy against God. Do you recall last week we discussed the significance of the fact that the gospel message is not that Jesus raised himself from the dead, but that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. And why that is so significant is because the message of the gospel is that the death of Jesus in the place of sinners was a substitute acceptable in the eyes of God, and he has proven this by raising his son from the dead. So the Father approves of the work of the Son as evidenced by the empty tomb. If, however, Christ was not raised from the dead, then the Father has given no such proof. In fact, it would mean that the Father has declared he does not approve of the sacrifice of the Son, that he has abandoned the Son's soul to Sheol. 
To preach otherwise is not just an innocent mistake. It is blasphemy about God by declaring someone to be God's Savior that God has actually declared not a Savior. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, it was in raising Jesus from the dead that the Father said, correct, if you take that away. It is the entirety of the Christian faith that comes crashing down and we find ourselves in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves actually preaching directly against what God has revealed. And that's not a safe place to be. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no resurrected Jesus. If there is no resurrected Jesus, then there is no approved sacrifice for sins. And we are left holding an empty bag of promises delivered by false witnesses who peddled a salvation without a savior. That's the heart of Paul's argument. But he's not going to stop there because there's a few more implications that he doesn't want the Corinthians to miss. And these dots aren't hard to connect, but it's important that we notice them anyway, because not only does this leave us without a savior if we have no resurrection, but without a savior, there is no good news to be proclaimed to men at all. Look at verses 16 to 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So Paul goes back. He catches us up with where we're at in his argument. You say the dead aren't raised. That would mean Jesus never rose. That would mean your faith is worthless. That's what he just covered in the previous verses. And there might be some there thinking, yeah, I mean, that's not great, but... There's still a silver lining here. I mean, I still believe in God. I'm still trying to be a good person. I'm following Jesus, and that makes me feel good about myself. That's enough for me, and it's probably going to be enough for God someday too. And you've probably met people like that. Yeah, the particulars don't really matter. I'm just trying to do my best, and then God will figure it all out in the end. Any of the Corinthians daydreaming about such things would have been pulled back pretty rudely to reality by those closing words in that verse there. You are still in your sins. And that little phrase reminds us what the stakes here really are. This is the central issue the gospel addresses. How can we escape the bondage of sin and be made right with God? And I fear the church today too often falls into the same pit as the church in Corinth. We take the gospel of Jesus Christ and view it primarily as some means to the selfish end of our own personal betterment program. And we've sort of been seeing that over and over in the book of 1 Corinthians. Sure, yes, I believe in Christianity. I believe all that stuff. But somehow allows me to have an excuse to go and fight and bicker and quarrel with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, of course I, I follow Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go sue my brother or cast away my marriage covenant. Or yes, of course I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But if what the Bible teaches is not what I think it should have taught, then I'll just leave that part out. And on and on and on we've seen the Corinthians happy to embrace the parts of the gospel that they liked and happy to twist or ignore or change anything else. Do we not see so much of that today on display in things like the kinds of books that become Christian bestsellers and the kind of vocabulary we find ourselves sometimes using when we talk about the Christian life, the ways in which even we evangelize? Why do we see so much material today 
that teaches us things like the point of the gospel is for God to show us how wonderfully, wonderfully valuable and special for we, we are and, and, and teach me how to forgive myself. What? No. The gospel reminds me that apart from him, I'm a rebel in my sins. And I don't need to learn to forgive myself. That's not even a biblical category that makes sense. I need God to forgive me. Why do we hear so many evangelistic messages that seem to focus on how, you know, Jesus just really gets us and he wants to satisfy all our felt needs and he just loves us so much that he just really, really, really wants to make us happy. He's like Prozac and chocolate and the seven habits for highly effective people all rolled into one. No. Christ died for what? Sins. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, then it didn't work. And that means no matter what we believe, no matter how we feel, no matter how happy we are in life and satisfied with our good Christian traditions, if Christ didn't rise from the dead as proof of victory over sin, then we will all go happy and satisfied and relatively good feeling people straight to hell, dead in our sins. That's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. This is what the stakes are, eternal destiny. And so I want to just encourage us as a church, let's make sure that we never tire of speaking of sin and its remedy. Have you ever noticed that you can speak about a lot of things relating to the Christian faith? You know, since I got plugged into the church, I just feel like I've been really able to make a lot of positive changes in my life. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy for you. Or, you know, I've just really been reading my Bible. It's just really inspired me to, to try to be a better person and really become all that, you know, I think my potential could have me to be. Oh, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Or I just feel so enriched and satisfied by being a part of this local church. Oh, that's, that's great. We're involved in all of these wonderful, you know, philanthropic projects and we're helping soup kitchens and foreign missions and all that. Oh, that's just, that's just adorable. The instant you say, do you know what? I believe that we are dead in our sins and that apart from the grace of a God who sent his son to die for us and who rose again, we will spend eternity in hell. Now all of a sudden they're like, slow down. Are you okay? Right? And that is why the pressure will always be on us to stop talking about that. Because we can talk about all the benefits of the gospel, and there are many, because the message of the gospel includes the restoration of the entire universe and a new heavens and a new earth. It includes our future happiness in the presence of God. It includes our current joy as we allow the Spirit to work through us, even in the middle of our trials. It includes all of that. But all of that hinges on whether or not we are in our sins or we are forgiven. And so the center, the bullseye of our gospel always has to be Christ died for sin and rose again. And we must never be embarrassed to declare that fact. Because without the resurrection, there is no Savior. Without a Savior, there is no good news, no gospel for any of us. We are all still dead in our sins. And if that sounds pretty hopeless, it is. 
which is why Paul goes on to say in verse 18, without a gospel, we have no hope. Look at verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not only are the living still in their sins, Paul says, but have you considered what that means for those who have already died in Christ? Because that means they died in their sins as well. And this probably would have been a fairly shocking thought to the Corinthians who denied the resurrection from the dead because for them they probably had just rolled the, the Greek philosophy in there and they just assumed, okay, after we die the, our existence will go on and so our dearly departed, they've probably had some kind of mystical experience where they've been caught up spiritually into the spiritual plane and, and their spirits will live on forever there communing with the divine or something like that. And Paul just yanks that whole notion just right out from underneath them. Notice how he's drawn a direct line. If you deny resurrection from the dead, then the necessary implication is that we have no Savior and no forgiveness of sins, and that means there is no beautiful afterlife of any kind for anyone who has died in Christ. Because you took away the sacrifice for sins, which means physical, spiritual, you quantum, I don't care. Whatever you imagine your afterlife to be, it is a condemned afterlife. It is still in sin. They died unforgiven. Take away the resurrection of the dead and you end up without any hope, not only for yourself, but for anybody, past, present, and future. It's that important. To believe, to spend your entire life invested into a system like that, invested in a faith like that, that promises so much and yet leaves every single one of its adherents condemned, well, that's just really, really, really sad, isn't it? And that's where Paul ends in verse 19. Without hope, we are just pitiable. We are just pitiable. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. To have given everything to Christ in this life, if he is just a corpse in a grave somewhere, is worthy of nothing but pity. I can remember as a child all the excitement around the Hale-Bopp comment. Anybody remember the Hale-Bopp comment? Yeah, that was kind of cool. It was just neat to think of this thing that was going to be passing close to earth that hadn't done so since the time of Abraham. 4,000 years before. And I remember as that got closer, and of course there was all the merchandising and all the attempts to get good ratings and everything, but also just how much spiritual and mystical significance so many people were trying to attach to this celestial visitor coming by us. No one, though, took it to quite such pitiable lengths as did the Heaven's Gate cult. If you remember those poor people, who became convinced that behind the Hale-Bopp comet was a hidden spaceship. And that if they could wait until that spaceship was as close to Earth as possible and then left their bodies, they'd get whoop, beamed up right spiritually into that spaceship for, for some kind of transcendent experience. And how sad it was after that comet had approached its closest point to Earth for them to have gone and discovered 39 dead bodies in a rented house, all as they kept describing over and over, sitting there so peacefully, so convinced that they were all about to get beamed up into Hale-Bopp's spaceship. 
And I won't forget, even, even as a kid watching just the, the endless stories about it, I mean, it was, it was the perfect combination for news ratings, so they just ran it over and over. But just the, the pity in the eyes of the reporters, the, the disappointment that somebody could be so naive and so gullible, that, that, that look just shy of open scorn at how foolish it would be to give your life thinking you're about to get beamed up into a spaceship following behind a comet. See, here's the deal. If Jesus did not physically step out of the tomb that he was laid in as a matter of absolute historical fact, then we here this morning are as ridiculous as the Heaven's Gate cult. And when the world looks at us and thinks, you're weird, they're right if Jesus did not rise from the dead. All of this is utter foolishness. I remember doing evangelistic work on college campuses, and on one in particular, we had the the, the atheist group on, on campus used to come and try to yank our chain. And we had lots of interesting conversations. But several of them had gone to the pains of actually going and starting a Pastafarian club on campus. You run into those people to, to worship the flying spaghetti monster and they wear colanders on their head. It was, it was a fake religion made up exclusively for the purpose of being a farce, of being a satire, of being a mockery of the Christian religion. A way of trying to hold Christians' face up to a mirror and show them how absolutely ridiculous their faith was. To say that your belief in a resurrected Jesus and in the scriptures is no more meaningful, no more significant than if I believe, as their great doctrine would say, in the flying spaghetti monster who has touched us with his noodly appendage. And you know what? If Christ did not rise from the dead then whether you're a Christian or a Pastafarian actually makes no difference if it makes you feel better. You're just as hopeless either way. At least they knew they were doing satire. And to much of the world, they feel like we're doing satire, we're just too naive to know. Paul's not ignorant of that fact. He's not a misguided guy who's turned his brain off. He realizes Either Jesus rose from the dead or this all makes no sense. Do not let go of the doctrine of the resurrection. No matter how scorned, mocked, attacked, ridiculed, slighted it might be. Because everything depends upon it. It is the only hope in this world. This whole earth is just groaning under the weight and the curse of sin. And we're all born into that curse. And you feel it. It's like you've been born into into a prison cell where you cannot escape the inevitable vanity of life because that cell, that prison cell, is locked and barred with a chain called death. And no matter what you will do in this life, death will find you one day. And there is no escaping it. 
we might imagine that we would just blink out of existence at the end of life, and that will somehow be our eternal destiny. That gives life no meaning or purpose. We might imagine that we'll get reincarnated a thousand times over back into this life. That would just be cruel to run vanity on a loop. You might imagine that somehow we will melt into a universal consciousness that is indistinguishable from death itself. There is only one message of good news, only one opportunity ever announced to men that says you can be free. You can escape the broken cycle of death that characterizes this fallen world. And that is the message that you can die and then live again. Because Christ died and lived again. If you take away the hope of the resurrection, you take away hope itself entirely from the planet. Which is why it's really good news that verse 20 begins by saying, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. It did happen. And that fact is the great hope of the Christian faith. Let us not tire to speak of the cross. Let's not tire to speak of justification. Let's not tire to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and helping us to repent from sin. Let's not tire of, tire of speaking the whole wealth of what Scripture teaches, but let us also make sure that lost in the shuffle there, we don't somehow lose a constant view of the resurrection from the dead. Because that's what everything else is hanging on. That's what our hope is hanging on. And that's what the world needs to hear. They don't need to hear us go out and preach to them. You know what might make you feel better this week? They need to hear us go out and declare, I will rise from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Because he died for sins. And God accepted the sacrifice. And they might look at you and think, you poor creature. And we might be tempted to freak out and say, oh boy, um, here's the scientific reasons. Here's the logical reasons. Here's the historical reasons. Here's, and we might try to retreat and find some other ways, the social reasons. This, this is why I should appeal to you and convince you that you should switch sides. But the, the arguments of the mind and the arguments of experience, and all, none of those things are going to change a heart that has a false idol. And so our message will always be Christ died for sins and he was buried and he rose again. He appeared to many. And the thing is, you might think that's ridiculous today, but if the all-powerful God of the universe decides to call you, he will change your heart through that message and through that message alone. So I will preach no other and I will live no other. Amen? Then let's sing of that and we will close this morning. <laughs>